As we open our Bibles, Lord, open our hearts now to hear your word. Do not be defensive, not somehow skirt around it, but to face it with the truth of our own hearts, held up like a mirror to our own lives. To your word, we pray. May the, the detox needs to happen in our own souls. May that take place as we see what's happening within our own hearts. And may uh, that give to us a measure of not only joy, but a real satisfaction, knowing that uh, we are really satisfied when we are in you and before you and close to you and uh, focused and facing towards you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I know it's a beautiful day outside, and it was a wonderful thing for you to, to you know, skip out on whatever. There's a lot of activities this weekend, and I know you, you couldn't wait to get here to hear a sermon on temptation, right? That's what all of you said in the car. I need that sermon on temptation because I, I, that's, uh, don't raise your hand during this sermon because I don't want to know, okay? But uh, I want to pull a piece and I'd like to read it because it's written so well. It's by Russell Moore, who's a pastor and a scholar. He's a Christian college dean, actually. The book is entitled Tempted and Tried by Russell Moore. So there I was standing in a hotel lobby with a strange woman, a throbbing heartbeat and a guilty conscience. In most ways it wasn't nearly as bad as it looks typed on this page, but in a lot of ways it was even worse. I didn't really do anything wrong and certainly didn't set out to do anything wrong, but it was just, that's just the problem. Before I knew it, I was scared at how mindless I was about the whole scenario. I'd gotten here kind of accidentally. My family and I were driving through the state of Tennessee, I think, and one of those sudden rainstorms emerged, the kind that brings slick grime right up to the surface of the road and mucks up the windshield with smearing smearing drops, and the, uh, the wipers can't seem to keep it clean. Even though we've gotten nearly as far as I'd hoped, we hadn't gotten nearly as far as I'd hoped, the rain just wasn't letting up. So I pulled over the minivan off the highway and left my family in the vehicle while I ran in to check for vacancy at a hotel chain whose sign we'd seen through the storm. I waited in line at the front desk. I was exhausted and irritated, mostly because of the rain and almost, uh, and the almost Hindu-like mantra coming from the back seat, Dad, he's hitting me. Anybody else ever heard that? Oh, yeah. It repeated all over and over again. My thoughts were clicking around as I waited for us to check in, moving from sermon ideas to budget numbers to parenting strategies. The clerk, a young woman, gave me an artificial pout and then a wink and a half a smile, indicating that she could tell it had been a trying day. Well, hey there, she said. And as soon as she said it, I noticed she reminded me of a friend I'd known back in college. She had uh, dimples in her cheeks, I think, and she tossed her hair back, holding it there her, in her hand for a moment as she checked on whether two adjoining rooms, one for my wife and me and one for the kids, would be available for that night. When she called me by first name, I felt a little jump in my stomach, like the feeling you get at the split second when the roller coaster creaks to the top of the pinnacle just before you can see the drop in front of you. I started to ask, how do you know my name? before I realized she was holding my credit card. (laughs) 
As this woman waited for the credit card machine to rattle out the receipt and punch out my automated key, um, we talked about the rain outside and how the traffic was bad and the ball game at the high school stadium down the road. She laughed at my little quips. She teased me about the soaking wet hair from running through the stormy weather. I felt like I was in college again or maybe even in high school. I didn't have to judge between disputes over whose toys or explain how predestination and free will work together in the Bible. I didn't have to pay for the mortgage to tell, uh, or to tell a faculty member I couldn't give him a raise, and I liked it. Just then I heard a word I never thought would terrify me, but it did all at once. I heard, Daddy. And then I heard it again, Daddy. And my three-year-old son Samuel cried out as he rode through the lobby in the luggage cart being pushed by his two older brothers. Look at me. And I did look at him, and I wiped a bead of sweat from my forehead as I realized I had completely forgot about my family who was waiting outside for me in the van. I felt like I'd been caught doing something wrong, and it rattled me. As I pushed the luggage of the cart to the elevator, Benjamin, don't swing from that. Timothy, no, you can't have the 40-ounce full-throttle energy drink in the vending machine. I mentally reassured myself that everything was going to be okay. I hadn't done anything, not even close. Here it is. But for some reason, I had paid attention to that woman, and worse, I hadn't noticed that I was paying attention to her until my kids interrupted me. Don't raise your hand. That's biblical terms for lust. And he admits it in writing. Dr. James Dobson says there's two kinds of men in the world, men who lust and liars. Yeah. So I wanna to talk to you this morning about this soul detox of what happens inside of us because if we're not careful, here's our tendency, it's to rationalize it, it's to justify it, it's to minimize it, to rationalize it. It's not that much of a sin, not a huge sin. It's only going to hurt me, nobody else. To justify it, it's, um, I deserve this. Have you ever done that before? Don't raise your hand. You ever said that? I deserve this. I have this coming to me. Every, besides that, everybody else does it. Why can't I get away with it? Rationalize it, justify it, minimize it. Uh, it's not that big of a deal. Minimize it. It's not that big of a deal, and I can quit anytime I want. You ever lied to yourself like that before? Don't raise your hand. All of us have been tempted. That is part of being human. But there's a temptation of the soul that goes so deep. And what's scary is when it takes hold and we begin to believe the lies we tell ourselves, we become like slaughter, animal slaughter for Satan. He can lead us all the way till he slits our throat giving us the familiar lines, the friendly pieces, the harmless kind of chatter, and believing it almost like you don't even realize it's happening as our author so clearly described in the hotel incident. If you're taking notes, write down this reference, James 1, 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when they're drawn away by their own desires, another version, their own lust. And when that lust evil desire is enticed, it will conceive sin. When that sin gives full bloom, it gives birth to death. Death. 
death of relationships, death of your freedom, but death. Again, another verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Uh, another one could be memorized, uh, really, quite frankly. First uh, Corinthians 10, 13. There is no temptation that's taken you, but what it's common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted above that which you are able, but will with the temptation make a way of escape. So you have to just run from it. It's a forest fire. Don't think you can stomp it out. When there's that kind of temptation in the deepest of your soul, get out of the woods. You're not going to put the forest fire out by stomping on it. You can run. Paul wrote that to Timothy, flee youthful lust. He wrote that from a preacher to a young preacher. Flee youthful lust. And then you have to tell yourself the truth. I cannot handle this on my own. I, I need a way of escape. And what is the way of escape? It's to play this out in my mind that this will lead to death. Death of relationship, future, goals, and ultimately the death of God's glory in my life. I don't get to see what God could possibly do. So how do we do that? Well, the Psalms, are, you know, it's, it's just amazing how applicable the word of God is. And one of the blessings that we get is to read it together and to hear it. So Psalm chapter 15. Hear the word of the Lord. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live in your holy mountain? The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from the heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others, who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest and who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. Let's go back over it again. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? In other words, who's going to be close to God? Who can live in close proximity to God and be at home in it? Not just be there, but be at home. The idea of, of, of who may live on your holy mountain is taking up residency where God is. In other words, you're at home with holiness. It's not that foreign to you, and you're not a visitor to it. You actually live on that mountain. You've decided to move there. Verse 2, the one whose walk is blameless. That's above reproach who does what is right, who speaks the truth from their heart. This is getting harder, isn't it? And it doesn't get better. Verse 3, whose tongue utters no slander. Now it's getting really tough. Who does no wrong to his neighbor and casts no slurs on others. It is so easy, isn't it, to cast a slur, to make a judgment call on someone and just let it fly by. It is so, uh, you know, at times it's kind of an intellectual pursuit to insult people without them even knowing it. You kind of you get extra points for that. So he despises the vile person, verse 4, but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath, even when it hurts, I'm keeping my word to you, even when it costs me something, even when it hurts and doesn't change his mind. In other words, he doesn't go back on his word. That's the person who lives close to the mountain. That's the person who lives on the mountain. Is the person who only keeps his word, but doesn't slander, even when it costs him something. And then it goes all the way, verse, verse 5, who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. Get that? I'm going to lend money to people who may not be able to pay it back, 
And on top of that, I'm not going to charge them what I know I could. Because they have bad credit, actually the interest should be higher. Is the way the thinking goes. And he says, no, actually because they have bad credit, there should be no interest. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. Who gets close to God? Who gets to live close to God and experience being at home with the maker? Verse 1. And when you are tempted to have other choices, you have to make the blameless kind of choices. Without the thought of consequences, make the right choices. And if you want to draw close to God, that demands you make the hard calls of despising the vile and honoring the fear of the Lord, which is not popular. And it means I'm making and paying the price and making the hard decision to follow the Lord. The psalmist said this, there's a certain kind of temperament a person's going to have, and these temptations are going to come your way to to spoil this. So, So number one thing that I see here is the one whose walk is blameless, that's a lifestyle choice. That walk is not a casual stroll, and it's not going just anywhere and everywhere. When you walk, it's deliberate. A stroll's different, right? You could just go anywhere with a stroll. But a walk is deliberate, it has direction, it has energy, it is consistent. And so because of that, that's a lifestyle, number one. Number two, I'm seeing action of the person who does what is right. Doing the right thing, obeying the maker, provides a, a, a kind of a palate that's a clean conscience. It allows you then to have lifelong regret-free living when you make the right choices, act a certain way. But it gets harder because now it's not just action, now it also includes words. Who speaks the truth from the heart. In other words, they're speaking the truth, but you've spoken the truth, but it's not all the truth, right? You've spoken the truth, but it's not all the truth. But when you speak the truth from the heart, you're, you're very transparent with your life. We speak the truth from the heart. We live in a society that twists words, manipulates words, puts implications to words, and then argues over the meaning of the words. And why do we do that? It's because we're at war in our own souls. See, there's something else going on when people do that. You have to figure that out. It moves from words to motives, whose tongue utters no slander. The blameless reaches even to this tone quality. Get this. The godly person who wants to live on the mountain and live close to God and pound the stakes in real deep and really camp up close to the Lord, they, can't, they have to give up rolling the eyes and, and, and moving against a person in a such a way, just easy slander, which is an easy thing to do. It even comes down to the motives. I think that there's even a secret kind of quiet satisfaction, a sinful kind of joy that people have in sinning hearts that they know they took a stab and the other person could do nothing about it. It's retaliatory. It's immature. Certainly it's not what happens on the mountain with God. And then it moves beyond his motives to this thing called honor, who keeps an oath even when it hurts. Notice the writer isn't saying... uh, you know how sometimes you think, well, if he just prayed more. He's not talking about prayer here. He is talking about honor, keeping the oath, and keeping your word. And you know what? I, you could pray all day, but if you don't keep your word, you wonder what's the value of the prayer. He's saying this is very practical. 
that you will, you will treat people with honor, and that tells you really how you're going to ultimately treat God because this is the relationship we have. It isn't really religion. It's really relationship. It goes all the way to the heart because you have to be able to loan money knowing you may not get it back. And on top of that, you aren't going to charge interest. And how do I know that's the heart issue? Because Jesus would say later, where your treasure is, where your money is, that's where your heart will be. And the psalmist already knew that, but Jesus finally verbalized it and said, oh, we know what's going on here. It's all about the money. We want to move closer to God. We want to live on his mountain. We want to go to his house. We want, to, we want our tent to be up close to his, if you will. But to do that, we have to deal with these temptations. And you can't think for a moment, oh, you know what I need to do? I just need to, I just need to manage my temptations better. If I could just curb them a little. Okay? Okay, we need to get that out of our heads. This is not like a, a cutback, 10% cutback on diet. You know, people do that. They eat well for five days on the weekend. They eat whatever they want. Okay? Don't raise your hand. But it may work that way with your diet. You may take a day off occasionally, but you can't take a day off with integrity. You can't just take a day off and say, well, today I can lie all I want. It's the weekend. I'm on the golf course. This is expected. I expected more amens at that, but that's okay. It's all right. I'll get to you soon. We think, oh, because I, I, was, I was a person of integrity for a certain amount of time or a certain place, now I can be impatient or I can have other motors. I don't have to be quite so honorable because I'm kind of off-duty now. This is my weekend, whatever that means. And that doesn't work that way. The only way you get rid of this temptation because it wants to eat you alive, the only way you get rid of it is to starve it out. We, you've never heard on the news, hey, we have Ebola in our country, we're trying to manage it. Do they ever say that? No. Do you know what they're doing? Trying to get rid of it. They're going to get rid of it. And wherever they find it, they're going to take a spray bottle and a wipe and they're going to burn it. They're going to hose it and they're going to take it and box it and ship it away because we're going to get rid of it. You have to do that with temptation as well. You have to starve it out of your life. You're taking notes again, 2 Peter chapter 2. They promise freedom, these are the liars, and, and all themselves they are enslaved with depravity. These are the liars in your lives. This is the temptation in your life. For people are slaves, get this what the text says, whatever masters them, whatever controls you, you are a slave to that. 2 Peter 2.19. So you have to starve out whatever that is in your life. This is the temptation. Maybe it's to make money. Maybe it's for power. Maybe it's for authority. Maybe it's to be liked. It doesn't matter. It could be food. It could be lust. It could be sex. It could be violence. Whatever that attraction is, that temptation is, you have to stomp on it now. Don't try to manage it. Don't try to curb it. That's not going to work because it will come back and come back. Because here's the deal. Your appetite only knows one word. Okay? It's the word more. That's all it knows. Okay? It's your day off and you're, you're off the diet. You're eating pancakes. Oh, what do you say? I want what? More. Say it with me. More. No, pay, say, it like, say it like buttermilk with blueberries in it. You want what? More. More. Yeah. You really want them because that's all your appetite says. Okay? I know some of you have had babies, you have babies in your house, but all of us were babies. You, you don't have memory of it, but you sat in a baby chair that had a little tray out front with a ledge, 
and all you did was just this, right? You just did that. I remember the day uh, Juan and I had a baby. It's been a while. We had a baby, and my dad had this new little box of mints. You have to understand, my wife is all about organic foods, whole grains. Everything's, you know, everything's beautiful, and she's, she's a, got kind of a dietitian background. Family consumer sciences or studies. And so everything's real natural, and everything's really good. My dad has a little plastic box. It's the newest thing on the market. They were called Tic Tacs. Remember Tic Tacs? And my dad decided he would tip one into the tray. Only problem with that was when he went like that, you know how many went out? We don't know either. Because our child just grabbed them and slugged them in her mouth and just, you know, she just... They were, she just foaming Tic Tacs for three days. She was up for like four days. You know, after that, she was so wired. She never had that amount of sugar in her life. She was one happy baby. And my father was sent away, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the happy day. Some of you don't even know what Tic Tacs are. And I, we feel bad for you. Yes, you've got There you go. Thank you. Thank you very much. Do I need it? You can tell from here. I can. Okay. But your, your appetite only knows the word more. And she just, that day, she just took in, when she knew, God, it was like, oh, my word. She just started slugging it away, and we couldn't pick them up fast enough. That's what, that's what the temptation does. You have to starve it out. Let me give you three pieces, kind of conclusions I, I came to. One was this. Succumbing to temptation does not bring satisfaction. Okay? Succumbing does not bring satisfaction. There'll be consequences, there's a price to pay, and it's violating your conscience is number one. That's a huge piece right there. But then you, you bow to the temptation, you find it really doesn't satisfy in the long haul anyway. It really doesn't satisfy because all you want is more. You remember the chip commercial? Remember the, the nobody can eat just one. That's right. So that, those same people later came out with personal-sized bags of chips that were they were not near big enough for me, right? You say, why, why is the bag so small? Because no one can eat just one. I thought they meant bag. And, you know, you are never satisfied. You always want more. Secondly, the momentary satisfaction is not worth the lifelong regret. It is not worth the lifelong regret. There'll be a sinking sensation. You know that your words, your motive, your action, your attitude wasn't right. And, and the sooner you get it right, the better. The sooner you get back on the course, the better. If you postpone it, what will happen is the front end of the message. You'll end up rationalizing, justifying, and minimizing. It's no big deal. I can quit any time I want. You know, it's, it's, no one else will know. I'm only hurting myself. I'm not hurting anybody else. You'll start rationalizing. You'll start justifying. You'll start minimizing it. The momentary satisfaction is not worth the regret and you will live in that regret field the rest of your life if you're not careful. And then here's what happens. Then you wake up one day and you say, God is far from me. I don't know where he went or what's up. And he seems silent to me. And you blame God like something happened. But you're the one who pulled up the stakes and moved the tent off the mountain. Because you wanted to do what you wanted to do. And you thought you could do both. And God is saying, who can do this? Verse 1, only the person whose way is blameless. See? You, you have to pick. Do I want to live on the mountain or not? Do I want to be close to God or not? And that's really the big issue. 
By the way, there are records of people, studies have shown people that do this and, and what happens is when they begin to this rationalize, justify, minimize, what happens is in the long haul, they create their own kind of crazy. They do it because there's an internal tension, there's constant cover-up, they can't remember what the truth is anymore, there's an excessive kind of compulsion that happens, which what really happens then, because they're constantly thinking, what did I say, what did I do, and who, who am I in front of, so what do I need to say here? Then what that does is it drains them from the life that God designed them to have, it just drains them from life. Because they can't live full and free, because they're always trying to figure out what they actually did or said. And the psalmist would say it this way, my sin is eating at me and my bones are aging, are aching. It's like, my, you ever had that where you're just weary to the bone? It will age you. That's what the psalmist said about her own sin. Now there's a happy side to this. Succumbing doesn't work. Momentary satisfaction just brings a lifelong regret. So there's a third line, and the third line is the character building of obedience provides the future kind of confidence, a future confidence, really good stuff. When I correct it quickly, there are fewer regrets and better advancement. There's a clean conscience. And verse 15 of the passage, whoever does these things, it says, will never be shaken. Uh, Building 429 is written in the song, shaken. It comes right from this passage. When you trust the Lord and you walk with him in righteousness and you are blameless, you cannot be shaken. You can't, they can't rattle you because you know what you're doing. And it isn't a kind of arrogance. It's a, it's a blessed kind of confidence. So let's bring this whole issue. By the way, I'm, I'm just amazed at how could this psalm written 1,000 years before Jesus, we're 2,000 years after, so that's about 3,000 years difference, right? How could this psalm be so good for us this week living in Maryland? You know how I know? Because the word of God is living and powerful. It is sharper than a two-edged sword. It knows my soul and my spirit. It applies to us today. And the, the, the application to us today is just abundant when we talk in terms of what's happening in Baltimore. There has, if you're not careful, there will be in your mind and in your heart, in your motives, in your actions, there'll be a temptation to do the stupid thing and if you act on that, you'll have that regret. It'll just set into motion. And the temptation is to think that you know. It's to assume that we understand. I, I don't understand it totally. I, no way. Or to pick sides, come out defending a position rather than pursuing truth. We come out already picking a side. To, and, and to act in anger either way. Either, no matter where you are in the position of Baltimore, either way. That kind of anger is not what the Bible calls the, the righteous kind of life that God wants. Or if you are not picking a side, but you're so easily offended, we can't really discuss if it's so ignitable. If there's a flashpoint, we have to get to the point where we can talk like adults. And then we can, or the other is, issue is that then if we have this temptation to think that we know or that we understand or that we already have the position then we judge, but we not only judge the actions, we judge the motive. I know why he's doing that, when we may not know what's happening, really. And then what happens is we miss out on the opportunity, here it is, as Christians, as Christ followers in faith, people who believe in a better way of living and a great way of dying, 
we, we come at it from a Christian perspective, and if we handle this properly, we will have a, an incarnational leadership taking place in the community if we handle this well. But the only way we're going to do that is if we understand it, which means for some of us, it's time to go ride in an officer's car for a day. I, 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 for others of us who've ridden in the officer's car, it's, it's time to go spend a day and live with a person who's in an underserved neighborhood and understand what that really means you know you always think that you know until you you see it and then it just turns your stomach um i i've spent time with officers i can't tell you the number of officers who've who've told me who've shown me bite marks on their arms not from their children (laughs) people they don't even know and it's a permanent bite, Mark. I mean, it, it happened, you know, it was back in 06. They still have the mark. But I've never been there, so I don't understand that. And I don't understand poverty to the point where I would want to steal because I need to feed my family. I don't, I've not been there in my life, thank God, but I don't get it. And, but you know what? The reality is at least I know that I don't get it. There was a storyline written and it went to the screen um, 20 some years ago. It's called The Doctor. William Hurt was actually in the movie. It's the story of a surgeon, a surgeon who was confronted by his grad students. Now this surgeon was not just a, a surgeon, he was in a, a medical school that was attached to a hospital. So when he performed surgery, he had a circle, a gaggle of, of students with him, white jackets, we called them. Uh, and they would just follow and herd behind that doctor. Well, he was harsh with his patients. He was always hurried. He was articulate, but he was never very patient with the patients. And uh, he just let them know, this is what I'm going to do, this is how it's going to do, what's going to happen. And his students confronted him and said, we don't think that's very kind. And he said this in his defense. We only have a limited time. Once I open the guy's chest, we only have a certain number of minutes. I've got to get in, got to get out. And I've got to get it right the first time. So he defended himself. Now, he was right in his response, but so were they. He was right, but so were they. One day, it all changed. And it was the day the surgeon found out he had cancer. And so he went down the hall to the waiting room and waited and waited and waited. And he got treatment after treatment and being left in the dark and not being told what the prognosis was or where he was in, this, in the process. He had to sit not only in waiting rooms, he had to sit with other patients who had less hope than he did. He had long turnaround times on, ta- on, on tests. And adding to his sickness, he had the worry and the angst and the uncertainty and he was pushed off and postponed and he lost his dignity. That's really the definition of a hospital. My dad told me years ago, Dave, the definition of a hospital is a place where you lose your dignity and nobody cares. <laughs> so it doesn't matter if you're half naked going down the hall. No one gives a rip, you know. Okay, thank you, Dad. Thank you, that bit of wisdom. Now the good news is this. The doctor became cancer-free. That was the good news. But the even better news came later in the storyline. He had to go through all the rehab, and he was off 
uh, duty for a, a season. He had to stay home for a season, drove his wife crazy for a season. Finally got, got to go back to surgery, and when he did, he went back to the school that was attached to the hospital where he performed the surgery. And by that time, there was a new batch or a new cohort of white coats of students. And so what did he do his first day back? He had some orderlies put that cohort together in a room and left them there for an hour with no answers. Just left them there. And so when he walked in, they were already agitated. And then, then he said, uh, good morning, students. I want you all to strip naked, put these gowns on. He started throwing gowns at them. And then he explained to them, you are going to have, and he starts naming the diseases, each one's going to have for 72 hours. And you're going to sleep in a hospital bed, you're going to eat hospital food, you're going to sleep here, you're going to, we're going to run you down the hall, we're going to pull your blood, we're going to run the test, we're going to take your dignity and cause you fear, essentially. And he explained the people that they are going to serve would be scared and lost and vulnerable besides being sick, and you need to know what that feels like. And so he gave them each a disease for the next three days, and they did sleep in those beds and eat that food, and they became different and better doctors because of it. Now, I've, I've thought about that. What would happen if that's the way we dealt with our issues, really, to fully understand what's happening. But isn't that what, this is the gospel. Isn't that what Jesus did for us? He could have from heaven just called down and go, I forgive you, it's all good. Start over, do over, whatever you want to call. He could have just done that, couldn't he? From heaven, like that, like the Pope does, right? How many of you are Catholic? You don't, don't raise your hand. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? You know what he's saying, don't you? Get off my grass. That's what he's saying. Hey, you, get off my grass. You've always wondered what that was. Now, some of you are mad at me because you're Catholic. The rest of you are not offended. Hang on, I'll get to you soon. <laughs> but you understand, he could have done that, but he didn't do that, did he? No, he came and he went through it with us. And when they caught him, he bled. And when they knocked him down, he bruised. And it was full pain. He, he entered into our situation. And so he became not just savior of the world, but he became the best friend you could ever have who understands what we've been through. That's the gospel. Now, let me go to Baltimore for a moment again. Without a doubt, we don't need violence in the streets. I want to be real clear about that. But you know what? The president's been clear about that. The governor, the mayor, the chief of police. And I don't know what the emotions ran through your head and through your heart. I, we were home Monday evening when it broke out. We watched the evening news, and we watched the CVS burn, the pharmacy. And as it's burning, I'm thinking, this is just violence. This is looting. This is illegal. This is bad. This isn't going to help. It is lawlessness. It's breaking the laws, which calls for punishment. And, and then I was afraid, you know what? That building's going to be vulnerable now, and, and drug addicts will go in and steal the drugs and then sell them on the street. But you know where my heart went? My heart went down the street to the little old lady who's not going to get her medication this week because the pharmacy's gone. 
where is she going to go? And can she travel further? I mean, if there's a 70 or 80 or 90 year old lady down the street that can't get out very much. And she did nothing to deserve that. We just made a bad situation worse. So my heart goes there. And then at the same time, my heart goes to a young man who died in the back of a police wagon. When a person dies, any person dies, should there be an investigation? Absolutely. We are a pro-life faith. That's what Christianity is. We value life as sacred. Therefore, any time a life is lost, it deserves an investigation. We have to find out why. And if we could prevent it or curb it or find a way around it, we need to do that because life really matters. That could have been your son, my son, your daughter, my daughter. Could have been any of us that day. So should there be an investigation? Sure there should be, but that's in process. Here's the deal though. Don't make the conclusions until the evidence is out. Because again, we pretend like we could have the temptation to already know when we don't know. Okay, for the Catholics in the room, here I go. Francis of Assisi, good Catholic guy from 850 years ago. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there's hatred, let me sow love. Where there's injury, pardon. Where there's doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. And where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it's in giving that we receive. It's in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it's in dying that we are born to eternal life. There's a lot of evil in the world. And it's in places where we would rarely look for it. I mean, there's evil that's obvious, but there's evil where we don't see. And you know what scares me? It's off of Russell Moore's book. I I see a lot of evil out there, but I still see seeds of it in here. That's the temptation piece. But you and I were not made for that temptation piece. We were made for something better. And when we were crucified with Christ, nevertheless we live, yet not I, myself, not you, yourself, live within yourself. You have been called to death to live to Christ. For we are crucified with Christ, nevertheless we live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God. Galatians 2, verse 20 who loves me and he gave himself for me. Therefore, I am no longer just under, uh, under in life. I am an overcomer. Romans chapter 12. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. With good. You, you do it, regardless of what other people do or say or think or whatever their motive is. Not long ago, I was, I, uh, sometimes you see me in town and I have a coat and tie on and the office staff knows when he has a shirt, you know, dress shirt, tie, if it's ironed, oh my gosh, that's not a good day. Uh, that, you know, he's either headed to the hospital, funeral home, and I say, or to court, you know, don't forget, uh, one of those days I, I had a dress shirt on, tie, and I had thrown my jacket in the back seat. I was on my way to an appointment. <clears throat> Came up to a road, it's a T, come up to a stop at the T. There's a car right in front of where the stop is. 
and it's a young lady, but she's not pulling out. She's just sitting in the intersection, but she's on the phone talking. Immediately, hey, hang up and drive. You know, I'm in the car by myself. I can say what I want. I argue, and I usually win most days, not every day. Hey, you need to drive. Well, then I realized this, this thing's like 10 deep. Her car's busted. Now people are pulling around. So they're pulling off the berm, going around, but they're pulling into the left lane that's coming back at them, but we're at an intersection. This is a wreck waiting to happen. So people are driving the other way, and, and these people that are behind are now impatient. They're pulling out. They see a little bit of space. So they pull out into this oncoming traffic, not being able to see. I think this is not going to go well. So... I get out of my car, and I start to walk to the intersection. I look at him like, you don't want me to hit your hood. It's, it's a mess. It's bloody. A lot of paperwork. You know, I just look at him like that. They stop. I, I get up to the car. She opens her door. I said, you got a gas, because it's, it's number one. I can fix that. We can go get some gas. She said, no, it just quit. And she's on the phone with somebody. She just quit right here in the intersection. I said, tell me how I can help you. She said, could you push me off over there? Well, I'm in a white shirt and a tie. I'm looking at the back of her car. Okay. Operator, give me Jesus. You know. So I get back there, and I push it. It's going like a mile per hour. I mean, it's like, oh, no. Then it occurs to me, let's make sure this is not in drive or reverse or, you know. And... So I walk up, I said, you're in neutral, right? And she said, yeah. I said, could you take your foot off the brake, maybe? <laughs> okay. So she took her foot off. But I didn't want to put my shoulder on it because I ruined the shirt. And I push, and now I'm going a mile, and then like two, and then all of a sudden we're really moving. <laughs> my gosh, those Cheerios really worked. And, <laughs> and we're really moving. Her car's not started. I look up, there's like three other guys around me pushing so now I stand up and kind of walk like, <laughs> kind of, we push her off to the way. <clears throat> here's, here's what happened. I, mean, I turn around and I say, you okay? She says, yeah, my dad's on his way. Okay, great. I turn around, those guys are gone. They're just gone. They hopped back in their cars and took off. Here's what I know is this. If you will do good, more good will happen. Nobody would stop. There were probably 20 cars that went by just in the minute that I was just getting out of mind, trying to get across. There were cars just zooming by. They're impatient. They have to be somewhere now. But then when someone decides to do good, then more good follows. Other people go, I can help with that because they see it, right? Guess what happens conversely? When one idiot does bad, sorry, I didn't mean to use the word idiot. Yes, I did. When one idiot does bad, <laughs> guess what happens? More bad happens. So guess what Christians have to do? We have to do more good. And when we do more good, what are we doing? We are overcoming evil with good. See? So, so we, have to, we have to, in a society where there's a lot of evil, a lot of places, we don't even necessarily recognize where it is. But we have to ask the right questions. And instead of making statements, ask good thought-provoking questions and overcome evil with good. If we really pay attention to what's happening in a person's life, not only what are they doing, but why are they doing that? What's going on inside their head? If we listen more than we think is necessary, 
if we watch the body language of others and if we verbally recognized people as human beings and checked in and made eye contact and valued people and encouraged them, would that solve, it may not solve every problem in the world, but it would certainly be in our moment overcoming evil with good. I find this, it's a lot easier for me to hate people I don't know. But you, know you know what I'm saying? People far away, I don't know. People I'm up close to have a relationship with, it, I just, you know, this, what you're saying isn't true because I know them. And it really comes down to relationship. But, so we have to be the good. We have to love people maybe more than is necessary or more than might, what, what, what might be considered prudent. We have to love them and believe the best and hope and act with a spirit of optimism. That's 1 Corinthians 13. And if we worked hard at it, I know this, that we may not solve every problem, but we could overcome evil with good. And we're not going to overcome evil with more evil. Oh, we get this. Well, he did it, so I thought I could do it. We're not going to overcome evil with criticism. We're not going to overcome evil with a clipboard, analyzing it. We're not going to overcome evil with distance, just getting away from it. We're not going to overcome evil with retaliation. We're only going to overcome evil with good. Yeah. So. All right, 1 John 4, jot these two references down, then we'll quit, okay? 1 John 4, 4. You, dear children, are from God, and you have overcome them. We are the overcomers, folks. So we set the pace for this. Because greater is the one who's in you than the one who's in the world. We're the overcomers. Next verse is John 16, verse 33. These are the words of Jesus. I'm telling you, in the world, you can have peace. In the world, you're going to have trouble, but take heart. He says, I have overcome the world. So that's our prayer. Not just for Baltimore, but for our own little hearts. Because we know the temptation would be to make the judgment call or think that we know or somehow think that we could distance ourselves and all will be well. And it will not. Why? Because the temptation is in here. You can move it far away. Guess what? It'll go right with you. So let's deal with it here. Amen? All right. Let's bow for prayer and let's stand as we pray. And as I pray, a um, couple of things. Jerry and Shirley will be off to the side to pray with you and for you. If you need to pray, they'd be more than willing to pray for you. But I need to tell you from the bottom of my heart, thank you for hanging in there and listening because this is hard for you to hear. It's hard for me to say, but it is so critically important that we get this down right. It's our identity in Christ that we are overcomers and together we'll face this for the glory of the Lord who made us and recreated us in his dear son. So Father in heaven, I pray for order in Baltimore, for safety, for good listening, and, and I pray for uh, better days ahead. I'm grateful for the, uh, the, th- the thousands who came out to clean up and the dads that stood with the officers and the moms who took to the streets and the, the kids who were there for, I, I, I can't get out of my head the picture of the little kid offering water, b- uh, bottles of water to the officers. Lord, may the good come out of this because we're the overcomers. And may we shine like stars for your glory. And may we deal with this, this issue of a tempted heart, knowing that if we, uh, if we feed that, 
we're going to be in trouble. But if we starve it and then live to your glory, there's nothing we cannot overcome. Lord, I pray you bless and keep these dear people. Make your face shine upon them. Give to them, I pray, peace. In the name of Christ, our risen Savior, the church says amen.